All right. Hey guys, my name is Dr. Shornell Wolverton Sihan. Welcome to True TV. We are so excited today because I have a very new and special guest on a topic that's very personal to me and I know very personal to many of you out there right now because there's so much going on in the last three years. Um, this topic is about division and families, specifically with children and parents. Um, and we're going to discuss his book, which is the entire topic, which has to do with the rules of engagement of how to, how to actually de uh, I'm sorry, engagement estrangement, <laughs> estrangement. Oh my gosh, here we go. I'm going to, I'm already like, um, flipping over my words engagement. Yes. It, that would be nice, but opposite actually. And here we are, we're actually doing this on Valentine's day, which is interesting, but yeah. estrangement is where I was going as how much division and estrangement there is even in the middle of what was normal families and how to deal with that. Like what, what can we do to, um, to navigate through all these different things? Um, so, uh, before we get started, I do want to remind everybody, please go to swiftfire.org, get on the newsletter. That way, you know, all the topics and all the people that are coming up. Um, definitely do our due diligence and um, checking out the resources there. Um, there's a lot of different books and online courses and things like that. And hit the subscribe button. And also please share this because I am guaranteeing you that you yourself are going through this and or people you know are going through this. Because in my practice, I'm seeing it every single day. Statistically, I'm seeing it more than I ever, ever, ever have. And I think it's a lot because of like the culture stuff, the medical choices going on, the, um, the politics of things going on right now. There's just been a lot of things that are like kind of pushing agendas and narratives for people to have to make some decisions and choose. Um, so without further ado, um, Dr. Joshua, uh, I'm so excited to have you. And my first question is going to be how and how did you get here because i know this is personal for you as well this estrangement and i'm going to get that word right um talk to me um first welcome and thank and thank you for being with us today but talk to me about your book and how this was birthed and your own story sure well um i was married and divorced in my 20s and have a adult daughter who i'm now very close to but uh there was a period of time in her early 20s where she cut off contact with me for several years, um, in large part in response to my becoming remarried, having children from my second and current marriage, um, and feeling in many ways displaced and kind of set aside and ignored and, um, you know, and that my kids from the current marriage had a much better lifestyle than, than she was exposed to and, you know, were raised in a healthy marriage, unlike kind of the very short-term marriage that, that um, she was exposed to with her, her mother and me. And so at the time there was nothing written to help me. And, um, um, and I made all the mistakes that, you know, every other parent makes. I defended, I explained, I got mad, um, you know, but the only thing that really worked was my learning how to be more empathic, to understand what it felt like from her perspective, to not defend myself. Um, and to really just be rooted in that. And as a result, over time, we were able to reconcile and we're, you know, very close again. Um, but once we had reconciled, I thought, well, God, there's nothing written. The, the advice that I got from, you know, 
well-trained therapists and friends and family was really counterproductive as it is to this day, because a lot of people don't know how to treat this problem. So I wrote my first book on it uh, in 2007, When Parents Hurt, Compassionate Strategies for uh, When You and Your Grown Child Don't Get Along. As a result of that, I got a wide following of estranged parents. And as a result of that, I developed a webinar series uh, and a free Q&A that I've been doing for the past uh, probably 12 years. Uh, so then I published the current book, Rules of Estrangement, uh, well, I guess 2021. Um, and that was a result of research that I did at the University of Wisconsin, published in peer-reviewed articles, and um, and also just the, the volume of people that I've either worked with directly or who've responded to my emails, my Q&A and the like. So at this point, it's really taken over my practice. It's basically the only thing that I do beyond the handful of people that have seen me for years before this. So. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And in your experience, are you seeing a heightened increase in this last few years or what, what exactly are you seeing? Yeah, I think it's, it's even since I wrote my first book on the topic, it's, you know, really ex exploded. And now it feels kind of like a, an epidemic of sorts and where it becomes kind of a new form of identity to go no contact and, um, and it's in the political, it's in the religious realm, it's in the health realm. So there's so many ways that um, estrangement is now being expressed. And, and just the what kind of holds families together has become far more fragile. And partly that has to do with the way that family life has changed over the past half century, where, you know, whereas it once was principled on the idea of honor thy mother and thy father, today it's much more, if it doesn't isn't in line with my ideals for my identity or my happiness or protection of my mental health, then I not only can I get rid of that person, family member, friend, or romantic partner, uh, but I should. And the failure to do so is an act of some version of, of cowardice. So all these things have been kind of interwoven with our search for identity and growth and happiness. And parents are just one more person on the chopping block. And that, that's that's part of it. I mean, other parts have to do with social media, how it becomes a kind of extended kin and a place where people can get support from others who don't know anything about the family and really have no investment in, in the family. Um, that's a big factor. Therapists are a big factor in the ways that we can kind of legitimize the idea that somebody was a narcissist or a borderline or somebody had an abusive childhood, whether or not they did or, or didn't, um, that's a huge factor. Rising rates of individualism. You know, in the United States, we have the highest rates of individualism than any other culture. Individualism oh, yeah. meaning, oh, go ahead, sure. No, expand yeah. upon that because I, I haven't finished your book, but I found that very fascinating when you, when you compared other cultures. Um, go, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, no, I think it's really the most important part of my work is helping parents to kind of code switch between the, you know, the culture that they were raised in, which is, I mean, I'm a boomer, I suspect you might be a, a boomer too. Um, and, uh, you know, we were raised in an era where there was still some degree of respect your elders, honor your mother and your father, even if you hated them or had fights with them, you know, it, it would be still a notion of respect um, and honor was still part of the culture. Uh, that is that has completely changed. Um, but we've just become more and more individualistic, meaning we're much more um, oriented towards our own self, our own happiness, autonomy, separation, independence. These are many ways the washed word of, of psychologists, um, but they've become to be kind of the main 
touch point in terms of who we are. And the problem with that is that the notions of what we might owe to other people, um, you know, one of the things that I observe a lot is that estrangement is rarely just between a parent and an adult child, which is my area of specialization. It really fractures the whole family. Siblings line up either to support the parent or the estranged adult child. Grandparents get involved. Grandparents may be cut out from the, the grandchildren's life. If there's conflict between the parent um, and the adult child. Um, so it really fractures the whole family system. The thing that concerns me about it is, you know, in the United States, we have record high rates of loneliness and social isolation and atomization of uh, mental illness. Um, and I think the fracturing of the family is part and parcel of that whole process. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think this whole like cancel culture thing, mm -hmm. um, it's been like super trendy to ghost people and like, um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not saying that people shouldn't move on from a bad situation. Um, mm. I've had to do that myself, you know, mm. but I think that the missing element that I'm seeing in a lot of these cases is there isn't a healthy sit down conversation involved where it's like, hey, you know, this is what I'm feeling. What are you feeling? You know, is there a way that we can have an adult healthy conversation and like work things through mm -hmm. instead of just like literally running away, ghosting, blocking, you know, you know, and it, it, they're teaching this on social media and they're, you know, the culture, I mean, my whole channel was taken down because I said a word, you know, it's like right. people are getting canceled right and left, whether they're celebrities, sports people, you know, whatever. And, it, and, it, and of course kids and adults and people, probably see all that and go like, yay, yeah, I should cancel you. And right. you know, what are your thoughts on that? No, well, you're right. It becomes a mark of some kind of form of identity and strength and assertiveness. And I'm taking on, you know, all these toxic people and setting boundaries, you know, with people and, you know, ghosting those who don't deserve not to be ghosted, uh, who deserve to be ghosted rather. Um, and again, there's, there's very little emphasis on, connection and the importance of relationships and the importance of a family somehow like thinking that family is important is considered somehow an old-fashioned you know out-of-date idea um and so you know and, and much of the common culture like i'm interviewed all the time and one of the most common questions i have is well when do you know it's time to cut out you know an, you know when is it time to estrange somebody and and I'm always happy to consider that question, but but the other part of that rarely gets asked, which is, well, what is the impact going to be on that parent? Because I know from my day-to-day -day work with working with sobbing mothers and sometimes fathers that the impact is disastrous, that the parent who's been cut off, not only from their adult child, but from their grandchildren, means that they're going to be denied the most important fundamental sense of identity and happiness and meaning and purpose, you know, because their adult child um, is upset with some part of them. And I'm with you. I think there are cases where estrangement may be necessary, but I think both sides have to do due diligence. I mean, my whole methodology with parents is, well, first of all, before you, you know, first of all, you shouldn't guilt trip your kid if they are estranging you. First of all, you should ask why they're doing it, why they feel like it's necessary, why they think it's in their, their best interest. You have to take responsibility. You have to look for the kernel of truth, if not the bushel of truth. You have to show compassion you know, not anger, even though you feel angry and hurt, you still have to do a due diligence on, well, maybe I have some big blind spots here, you know, that I did, didn't realize I was being hurtful to you or that I thought you had a good childhood, but you're telling me you didn't. So let's 
Let's talk about it. Let's think about it together, not from a perspective of proving you wrong, but more from a perspective of, of learning more about you. So that's on the parent's side of due diligence. On the adult child side is, well, you know, let me let me show empathy for what it was like for you to raise me at the time that you did and what parenting ideals were like when you were raising your child, which was far less psychological in general than, they, than it is now. There's far, I mean, there was still, I mean, our generation in many ways invented a much more psychologically intensive form of parenting, but it's gotten to be that on steroids at this point. And so now adult children feel like if they didn't, they're not happy, then it must be the parents' fault, which is ridiculous, but can be true. Um, but I think adult children also have to be aware of the cost that it is to parents when they cut out the parent um, and that that should matter to them, that the only, that the most important thing isn't just their happiness, but it's also the parent's happiness and how it's going to impact the parent. And then when the parent says they did the best they could, they really mean it. Now, that doesn't mean that the parent gets to continue to be abusive and neglectful and harmful and humiliating and shaming. Um, but if the parent is willing to do the work, uh, willing is to, you know, willing to change, to, to accept the child's boundaries, then that that should be the start of a productive conversation, not the end of it. Yeah, I agree. And you're right. It does affect the siblings. It affects the grandparents. It affects, you know, all. there's so many different um, areas. And and I think I'm seeing a lot of people extremely down and depressed, especially around holidays like oh, yeah. like Valentine's, Christmas and what have you. And, you know, they can look around and go like, hey, we used to normally do this and now we're not. And like suicide, suicide rates are way skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think it just, yes, I'm all about boundaries, but I'm about healthy boundaries after you have try to sit down because I think the right. sitting down talking is what gives the opportunity for growth on both sides. And, right. and as people grow, then, you know, then we can learn more about each other, about our own selves. And like you said, see blind, blind spots that obviously, you know, if people aren't aware, they're not aware. You right. don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Um, so the whole ghosting, like, bye, see you later kind of is so, crazy and abrupt and and then there's no talking there's no ability to talk in some cases um i've talked to several people who you know maybe their son got married to a woman and then that was the the turning point of oh, yeah. you know, the new marriage you know um where the wife didn't like the mom or vice versa um yeah. You know, so there's there's all different things and i think even like i said mentioned earlier the medical situation that we've been in the last three years where some people are pro this and some people are pro that and people were you know not being by each other around the holidays or things like that because they were there was so much fear around you know oh you didn't do this or you did do this or mm -hmm. <laughs> you know so i think a lot of like TV and like you said, social media and things have kind of even been even more of a opportunity in this season. Um, and it's been heartbreaking for so many, so many people. Um, what, or what are the, some of the steps that you went to start out? Like, what do you, how do you approach any of this besides taking ownership? Like, what do you do if you can't even reach that person? They have completely blocked you. What are what do you tell people? I don't have a magic solution for that. You know, my there isn't really one. I mean, some adult children don't want to be discovered. And, you know, some parents will 
hire a private investigator. And I always tell them, well, you can hire one just to be reassured your child is alive, you know, or functioning. But if you hire a private investigator to get an address for your child, you know, even though they've said that they don't want to be discovered, your kid is just going to accuse you of stalking them. So it, it, this is one of those social problems that doesn't always have a solution. And my least favorite advice to give to parents is, I think you just have to wait. You know, and there is a case for sometimes doing nothing. And I usually encourage parents, if they're going to do nothing, to do it for at least a year. And sometimes that works. Either the, ch the child may feel like the parent's finally respecting their boundaries and their limits. Child is saying, I don't want to be in contact. Parents finally going, okay, then I'll, you know, we won't be in contact. It may also cause them to miss the parent. That old saying, how can I miss you if you never go away is also true in family life. It may invite more self-reflection because the adult child may feel like, huh, my mother hasn't reached out to me for eight months and she was reaching out you know, twice a month. I wonder what's going on. Oh, that's right. I said, I didn't want to be in contact with her. Do I really not want to be in contact with her? Whereas if the parent is continuing to reach out despite the child's protestations, then the adult child doesn't have to really think about it. Uh, and if anything, they just are made to feel feel defensive. So, so sometimes stopping is the right thing to do. Yeah. 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 And I know you mentioned too um, how there can be an effect if someone goes to see like a psychiatrist or a psychologist or they get counseling of some form, um, only getting one side usually, and you know how that can be helpful, but it can also be harmful. Can you go into that a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, you know, therapists don't exist in a culture outside of the highly individualistic culture. So often we're what uh, the sociologist Allison Pugh refers to as uh, detachment brokers, meaning we help people detach from, you know, people that our clients feel are problematic and we help them with their feelings of guilt or responsibility, you know, and that's partly why there's this huge anxiety about codependence. I think it's one of the most overused problematic terms in our, our you know, in our lexicon. There's a place for it, right? I mean, I think everybody needs to figure out whether they're giving to somebody else purely out of guilt and obligation versus something that's truly in their well-being and, you know, being able to find that boundary between giving too much versus giving enough. Uh, but I think dependency in all forms have, has become kind of pathologized. And I think we as therapists aren't often careful enough we're very eager to help our clients not feel guilty or responsible for family members' happiness, but we're not really as good at helping them think about when they should be more caring or why they should be more empathic or you know or concerned about how their behavior is affecting that parent or family member or other person. And this goes to what um, the political scientist Yasha Monk refers to as the the age of responsibility and how our notions of responsibility have changed from what it was, say, four decades ago, where responsibility really involved a concept of being responsible to others, to you know, to citizens, to family, um, to you know, to community, and it's become this much more self-centered, almost punitive sense of responsibility, where people have to earn their uh, their keep in terms of the family. So it becomes what I call the emotional meritocracy, that you know, that adult children will sometimes say, well, you didn't see see that I was depressed when I was young and you didn't get me help. So therefore I can't have a relationship with you. Um, and there's this idea that if the parent missed something or didn't put the adult child, put the then child onto a clear pathway towards happiness, that the adult child owes the parent nothing, despite the fact that really 
parents who've been parenting for the past three or four decades are probably the most educated, dedicated, psychologically aware parents of probably any other generation and probably providing their children with the highest quality of, of parenting than any other generation. I mean, it's an anxious, guilt-ridden form of parenting for the most part, uh, but it, nonetheless, it's a very involved, uh, you know, caring form of parenting. And yet they're being hoisted on this you know, this banner of, well, you didn't do enough for me because if you had, I'd be happy now and I wouldn't have anxiety or depression. I'd be confident. It's like, well, maybe, but it may also be your genetics or bad luck or who you married or your siblings or your neighbor or, or social class. I mean, there's so many things that go into forming an adult identity and, and sense of personhood beyond parenting and family life. But yet um, our culture, um, has really embraced this whole idea that everything boils down to your childhood. And it's just, it's, it's bullshit. Am I allowed to say bullshit? I just did. I've said it twice. <laughs> That's great. So awesome. Thank you for saying that. Um, I usually trust someone a lot more if they cuss openly. <laughs> Me too. I don't know what that is. but that is it's much more interesting, yeah. Um, <laughs> switching gears, um, a couple things. Narcissism seems to be like such a hot word. And it seems like if you if you've ever been on Facebook or Instagram or anything, if there's yeah. memes about like everyone's a narc now, like a narc this, a narc that, you know, and I'm not saying that there aren't people who are narcissistic, but it seems to be kind of like trendy again of just this yeah. part of this like labeling, name calling, oh, well, I'm getting away from this toxic parent or this toxic right. child, or you know, she's a narc, he's a narc. Speak a little bit about that. No, it's true. It kind of drives me crazy as, as well. And it's all part of the whole preoccupation with boundaries and gaslighting and this whole idea that you have oh, to gaslighting. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, another one. Uh, you constantly have to be on the lookout for people who are going to hurt you and take advantage of you. And it's kind of a paranoid um, notion that you have to be so suspicious of everybody's motives. But in the parenting realm, my theory about it, even though men are much more likely to be diagnosed with narcissism in a clinical setting, mothers are typically when, what I see being the ones who are being called narcissists. And I think it's because mothers tend to be more involved because they have been more anxious you know, over the past four decades because it's harder to raise children. It's harder to get them through the narrow bottleneck that can launch them into adulthood. Um, so to me, I think that the preoccupation with boundaries and narcissistic mothers is, is a, it's the only way that adult children know how to feel, have a sense of separateness from the parent without feeling too guilty about it. In other words, if I call you a narcissist, well, I don't have to feel guilty about your complaining I'm not as available to you or I don't care as much about your feelings. That's a pathology in you that you're narcissistic, not that I'm not being as available as you want me to be. Um, so I think that that's, that's a big part of it. Well, and even amongst like friends or whatever, if you tell your friends, you know, he's in Mark, he's an arc or she's in, right. you know, that says so much without right. much to say. And then there's no reflection on anything that I'm, I'm looking at or that person's looking at or whatever, because it's like, oh, well, well, then it, it's like permission almost to, to keep with the behavior or to cut off or not to look at yourself at all, which we're all mirrors and, you know, everything. I try to look at everything as, as, as neutral as possible and to see whatever uh, responsibility I have in anything, you know, and sometimes there's ways to do that. And, and there's a healthy way to sit down and talk. And then sometimes I'm not given that ability or that option. 
Right. So, and in those cases, um, that's kind of like, well, you know, it's out of my control and you kind of have to just go with it and move on and try to work through and navigate your own feelings about it because there isn't anything to do that you can physically do when it's an adult child, you know? Mm -hmm. um, right. That's true. Yeah. Well, I think the reason I don't like the diagnosis or diagnosis in general of parents is just that it, it does become kind of an excuse to just say, well, they're hopeless. So I don't, first of all, I shouldn't feel guilty about that. Second of all, I don't owe them anything. And I don't, there's no need for me to feel guilty or empathic towards them because they're just, they're beyond redemption. So that's why I think that the, that in the wrong hands, that label can be so problematic. Because I read letters all the time from adult children who say, well, my therapist said you're a narcissist, or the past three therapists I've seen all say that you're a narcissist. So, you know, so I, you know, you're not going to change. So why should I try? Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Really, very common. Well, and another thing that I got, and I want to really put this out there and just remind everybody about this book. And I'm going to have all the links here. You guys can see all the links to Easy Clickable, Get It, and all connection um, to Dr. Coleman and his work. So uh, if this is something that you guys are struggling with, you can go through and get some more information. But one of the things that you mentioned in the book, too, is about like individualism now versus even years ago and you even talk about different countries where like south america a lot more family oriented where it's like the family unit is a, a whole different thing or india um you know yeah. how that set and the differences in even america mm -hmm. versus other countries and like we're the highest in individualism can you speak a little bit about that well, yeah, and and it all it distills into you know the way that we experience ourselves and the way that we experience others. So, for example, there's some research. I think the researcher's name is Kitayama, uh, K-I-T-A-Y-A-M-A, -A -A, um, who looks at the kind of the way that different cultures uh, sort of prioritize certain feelings over others. So she found that, in particular, in Asian cultures, I believe she was mostly looking at South and East Asian, there's much more of an emphasis on interdependence and fitting in. And from that perspective, feelings like anger or assertiveness are kind of frowned upon because they're antithetical to the notion of, of being more inter interdependent and collaborative in your relationship. And also the notion of... Um, of being a group member, group member is far more important. So for example, the uh, Japanese psychiatrist, Takio Doi, who wrote an important book called The Anatomy of Dependence. He said, you know, one of the things he found when he came here to do an internship um, at the managers was that Americans didn't really have a, have a healthy way of referring to dependence. Whereas in Japanese cultures, Dependence and dependency is considered a sort of a healthy part of the culture, the way that people are naturally dependent first on the mother to the child, uh, the child to the mother, uh, but then to the larger group. And so identity is much more formed around identity as being a group member. Whereas the United States, it's really in antithesis. It's what the sociologist Amy Schell refers to as adversarial individualism, the idea that you become an individual in opposition to your parents in an adversarial relationship. So when that's the case, the emotions that you experience you're, you're, it's like an, you know, you're an orchestra conductor. We're going to bring up, you know, the angry, assertive, um, you know, intense emotions, and we're going to damp down those that are much more collaborative or focused on guilt 
or responsibility towards others. Whereas in cultures that are more independent, it's really the opposite. And more importantly, research by Iris Mouse at uh, UC Berkeley, M-E-U-S-S, finds that in those cultures, similarly the ones I've described, that prioritize uh, happiness as a form of social contact as, a, as opposed to individual aspirations, that they have much higher rates of happiness than we do in the United States, because we're constantly thinking about our boundaries, what's going to make me happy, and what do I want, and how can I become my, my most true self? You know, that that turns out not to be a very reliable pathway to happiness, as much as just fundamental, basic social connection. You know, connection is really the most important thing that makes us human and predicts happiness, far more than some of the things that you know, we preach in our field or the self-help movements take, taking over TikTok or Instagram or whatever people are getting there, the propaganda these days. It is, I agree 100%. It is propaganda. And I think that there's a bigger picture here of, you know, um, other forces who are really trying to cause that divide mm -hmm. in the family to break everything down, um, you know, ultimately for a lot of different reasons. Um, yeah. But, sure. but yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, um, I, I watch 90 days, uh, fiance, for example, or whatever, and the Indian culture, you know, they grow up and like the, the parents pick the family and they all still live together. They're all very close. You know, I'm not saying to that level, obviously that's not a big thing in, um, mm. to have arranged marriages and everyone live together, but you know, um, even in the South American families, you know, that is very normal and it's fun. And they, you know, they make it a big deal, like, you know, holidays and what have you. Right. I came from a military background. My dad moved, um, you know, we moved every, every couple of years. So I didn't have the luxury of being around my grandparents too much, except for when he was deployed mm -hmm. and we stayed with my grandparents. But um, when my dad finally retired, I felt home was them. Mm -hmm. And to this day live like two houses like, right up the street from them. And I can't even like, I've tried to leave a couple times. I just can't even imagine being away from them and not just because what they helped me with, but because I want to be around them. Like I, I do love them and enjoy them. And do we see eye to eye all the time? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Um, right. But it just doesn't even occur to me in my mind to like move or, you know, where now it's kind of like kids grow up and they leave and go out the state or what it's just very normal. I think with social media where we can have FaceTime and things like that, that helps mm. a little bit too, but it's, you know, this whole, you know, you get up and you go and you do your thing. It's just a lot different now than um, what I've maybe a decade ago that I've seen, or even two decades ago, maybe, a bit further back, but um, would you agree? Well, I certainly agree that Americans are the most geographically mobile probably of almost any other culture and that that does, can facilitate estrangements or distance because the physical distance and um, also you're cut off from other people who might influence you towards being involved with the family. Like, you know, we'll come to Easter or Hanukkah holiday or whatever, and, you know, your parents will be there and you're kind of forced into contact with them in ways that you might not be um, otherwise, but no, I think the kind of the American story of independence and separation and moving out and being, you know, kind of the rugged individualist is very much at the heart of a lot of these narratives that are still very compelling in our culture. 
Um, but I think what you were saying earlier about cancel culture is really accurate in the way that it affects the family. It's like, you know, you were saying, well, you know, I don't, it's not like, you know, my parents are perfect or we don't have conflict, but it's sort of like today, if you don't agree on everything with somebody, if your values are perfectly aligned well, then somehow you're being dishonest. You're not being authentic to your true self. If you still love that person or still want to spend time with them, the idea of, of agreeing to disagree uh, has largely gone away. So for example, if you look at surveys, uh, to your point, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, parents would, uh, the idea of a parent, uh, you know, a Republican parent um, saying that they would tolerate a, a child, marrying, the child's marrying a Democrat or vice versa, you know, 15 years ago, be like, well, we wouldn't love it, but it wouldn't be a big deal. And now it's like, no, they're the enemy, basically. So our right. culture is becoming so divided and, and so overwrought and so overheated. And a lot of that, you know, is the media, but a lot of it is just rising rates of individualism. And there's really no constraints on um, on these ideas that are perpetuated and uh, in all these different forms, self-help, TikTok, Instagram, et cetera. So. It's, it's a trend to me. It's it like, cool. It's actually yeah. celebrated. It's, it um, yeah. it's very strange to me to celebrate division. Um, <laughs> I, I, like a, I don't want to quote you on that one. I like that. <laughs> yeah. If you go on the websites, the forums for strange adult children, it's always like, you know, best thing I ever did, don't need the stress, don't need the drama, never felt better, couldn't be happier. It's kind of like, okay, well, and where does your parents' immiseration fall into that? Where's the fact that your mother's now crying in my office every day and feels like the one source of connection and meaning has been taken from her? Is that like nowhere in your consciousness? Is that like completely irrelevant to your ideation about what a happy life should mean? And I don't know, it's, it's just kind of a it's um well what I, what I love about your approach though is and again I'm gonna plug this book because I, I haven't finished it all but I'm pretty close. <laughs> you 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 don't just sit and talk to the moms and the dads or the kids because there are children who are estranged from their parents at not their fault either. I mean it goes both ways. It does. Um, Yep. I love that you um, not only listen and give advice and try to support, but you also jump in and you're willing to like sit down, listen to medical, you know, listen to where any kind of counseling background that has happened or what's, you know, you look at the full big picture mm -hmm. and then you're even offering to like email the child or the, you know, the adult child or the parent with the um, kind of neutrality of like, let me jump in. I'm not on anyone's side. I'm just here to say, you know, let's, it, would you be open to conversation? So right. talk about your approach with that and how your work, because that's very different than anything I've seen so far. And I really appreciate that and your service to that. Oh, thank you. And actually, I'm, I'm, um, I don't know when this is going to air, but March 5th, I'm going to be doing an all day training for therapists. And you can get CEs if you're a licensed psychologist or MFT or LCSW or RN uh, who, who want to learn more about working with estranged parents. Because to your point, it's a very different approach. It's not, you know, the usual family therapy approach or couples therapy approach or individual approach is going to fail because it has to factor in A, how little power the parent has and B, how much the focus has to be around the adult child's pursuit of mental health and personal happiness and growth. And so anything that doesn't factor those things into the equation are going to fail. So one of the things I'll always tell parents 
um, ahead of doing a family session if I can get the adult child to come. And sometimes it's the adult child who's initiating it. As I say, this isn't marriage therapy. Okay, there's a, you're not going to have an equal claim to the outcome of how the relationship is going to be. This is more like you're divorced and the person that you're divorced from is willing to come back and have a session or two to see if you've changed and you're willing to make the divorce a more uh, equitable, pleasant place for them to be. So we're not going to talk nearly as much about how much you've suffered or what how your ideals about the relationship, et cetera, particularly in the beginning. I mean, if we do, if we work together long enough, we'll be able to get more of that into the mix. But initially, you know, the adult child just has to feel like I have their back and that um, that I know that they've estranged themselves for what to them feels like a really good reason. And I'm not going to challenge that or question it or criticize it. Um, so, um, so that's a really important part uh, of the work. Um, but it is true that I will reach out because typically it's the parent who, who approaches me. Um, typically it's the adult child who's done the cutoff. Um, so I will reach out to the adult child and just to your point, say, just started working with your parent. I've went with them once or twice. Um, I assume people, when they cut off a parent, have good reasons. So my goal isn't to encourage you to reconcile, even it's more to help me help your parent, or if you would be open to doing a session or two with them so I can support you in um, your desire to have a different, healthier relationship with them, I'm happy to do that. Now, when I reach out to the adult child, probably 60% respond, 20% say, no, thank you. Probably another 20% of the ones who respond will write some long, angry diatribe about the parent and then say, <clears throat> don't ever contact me again. Uh, and they may have a few choice words for me as well. Um, <laughs> uh, but the remainder, you know, often are willing to talk. Sometimes they'll say, well, thank God my parents finally getting help. And I'm really appreciative of that. And or they'll say, well, I'm skeptical that they can change. But sure, I'll talk to you. And if they'll talk to me, then I can usually persuade them to do a few sessions of family work because I made it clear that I'm not going to I'm not there to criticize them or change them. I'm there to help them have a more productive conversation with the parent. Um, so that often goes really well. So people will sometimes say, well, what's your success rate? And what I say is my success rate is great if I can get both people in the room or in a session. The problem is getting the adult child to agree to it. So if I can't get the adult child, you know, my success rate's not not as good as it is with the adult child in the room because a lot of the adult children are saying, well, this is working for me. So I don't want to reconcile and I, no matter what. So. Right. And you're, you're in California. Do you do like zoom for people who are out and about or anything long distance? Okay. So you do, yeah, I do, I do coaching if it's for out of state people where I'm not licensed. So. Okay. And you mentioned um, something about groups, your support groups. Can you, can you share about that, how people can get connected with that? Yeah, I'm doing one now. I don't, I'm probably not going to do another one for a bit, um, but there's six to, you know, six to seven uh, parent meetings and they're, they're really great because it's just, it's so helpful for parents who feel so isolated and ashamed and lonely and self-critical to just talk to other parents who they can see are reasonable, caring people and getting that kind of peer-to-peer -peer support is just so it's so therapeutic and there's a lot of wisdom from other people. I mean, it isn't just me distilling advice. It's other people. It isn't even that advice centered. It's more support centered, but just hearing from other people, what they've been through and um, their perspective is, is tremendously therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would think that that would be um, especially because of something you just said, guilt and shame um, that to me 
you know, when people are posting whatever on Facebook or whatever, they can be going through whatever, but they're not going to post, you know, my child cut me off. My dad cut me off, you know, usually, I mean, now some might, maybe they will, um, for the most part, um, that isn't something that people really want to talk about. Now they'll come when I'm doing work with them on their physical body and I'm seeing a lot of heart issues and, you know, um, a lot of other things, emotion that are emotional um, stress, you know, mm-hmm. and then people will combine in me and say, well, look, this has been happening and blah, blah, blah. I haven't seen my daughter for, you know, 18 months and I haven't seen my grandkids or, you know, my, my son won't, isn't speaking to me ever since he got married or, you know, just, you know, that, that's when it comes out. But here I would like see, you know, their normal life on Facebook or whatever. I'm like, well, I would have never known that that was really happening. And it seems to be a subject that really isn't talked about. And that's another reason why I wanted to bring this to light because it isn't something to feel guilty about. It isn't something to feel shame about. Um, And it is very much like a divorce or a death. Uh And, and And I have had friends who had children who, and patients who've committed suicide and have to deal with, you know, the aftermath of all of that, but, and then get closure from that mm-hmm. But with divorce or estrangement. It's a little bit different because those people are still alive. You just don't know where they are or what they're doing. And you're dealing with the direction, the whole like rejection, I guess, of mm-hmm. not knowing what to do, not having direction and dealing with all the feelings left all alone, you know? Um, or you do know where they are because you can see what you know, see them with their other lives and your grandchildren on Facebook or other forms of social media. Um, and and your listeners should know I do have a private Facebook group for estranged parents and grandparents um, that people can um, join through my website. Um, so that that is kind of a confidential place where people can talk openly about their um, their experience. Um, but no, people do have an enormous amount of shame, and people assume you know, um, that they say that they're estranged, that people are going to say, well, you must have done something. What'd yeah, you do? Something, yeah. I'm pretty terrible. Kids don't just cut off contact for no reason. And it's true they don't cut off contact for no reason. It's just that the reasons may not be uh, what the parent did or didn't do. I mean, as you said earlier, it could be problematic relationship with the son-in-law or daughter-in-law. It could be a result of a therapist misdiagnosing the parent. It could be parental alienation, you know, where the parents divorce and one parent poisons the child against the other parent, either in childhood or adulthood. It could be mental illness on the parent's part, but certainly on the adult child's part themselves. Uh, and in some ways, I see a lot of sometimes adult children just don't know any other way to feel separate from the parent than to cut them off you know, particularly with cell phones and texting and some adult children just feel really crowded. It's just kind of like, I don't know any other way to like get some space from you other than to in contact with you. So um, there's just a lot of pathways to a stranger beyond parental abuse or neglect. Well, you mentioned the word uh, parental alienation. That word is not, or that two words, isn't something I ever knew about until about six months ago, someone brought it up to me in a Mm -hmm. sentence. Um, and I had to Google it because I was like, what is that? Mm-hmm. So I'll talk about that for those of anyone listening that may not know exactly what that what that looks like. No, it's a really super common problem that a couple gets divorced um, and one parent, you know, typically the troubled parent basically just brainwashes the kids against the other parent. They either 
lie to them about what the parent did or they give them totally inappropriate information about you know who that parent was in the marriage or they convince that child that the parent was abusive or neglectful or didn't love them or didn't care about them and it's kind of easy to brainwash a child against the other parent particularly in a situation where there's not either shared custody or some kind of insistence on on shared custody but it can also happen you know in so-called gray divorces when parents in their 60s on up which is the most common uh, uh, group that divorce these days uh, if one parent acts more victimized by the other and you know says well you know dad left me with nothing and um you know he had all these affairs in the marriage or you know well mom was totally took advantage of me or you know really um, act victimized by the other parent and persuade the kids that that other parent is a terrible person and that they're being disloyal to that uh, a parent by staying close to to the other parent. Um, and we know from the research done by Amy Baker, um, other people that do, I can't remember the other person's name who does a lot, um, that the long-term effects on children is terrible, I mean, particularly kids who have it happen when they're young. And it's not hard to understand because it's basically inviting a war psychologically inside the child, whether you know feelings of love and obligation and affection for one parent are those loving feelings are now being kind of made to be toxic inside of them and an act of disloyalty and really confusing. So uh, sometimes kids just cut off contact with the other parents. It's just easier psychologically to have one view than this kind of garbled view of, of the parents. So no, it's a serious problem and really, really common. So what do you tell the parent who is being um, pushed aside um, or rooted against? Like what, what, what steps are there? Well, if the kids are minors, then I tell them to get a really good lawyer who knows parental alienation um, and try to get before a judge who can insist on uh, enough uh, visitation or custody um, or evaluations. Unfortunately, all these things cost money. Um, but if the parent has the resources, don't just assume that time is going to heal all wounds because it won't, won't necessarily. Anyway, um, you know, see if there's a way to use the courts to insist on uh, reconciliation therapy, um, et cetera, um, because you just don't want to leave it to their own devices. If it's an adult child, it's more complicated because <clears throat> the adult child has probably had years um, to develop this narrative. So a parent can't just come in and say, well, your mother brainwashed me or your dad brainwashed, I mean, you, they're brainwashed, um, yeah, you know, made you feel this way about me. You know, they believe what they believe. So then the parent still has to kind of find the kernel of truth in the child's complaints and, you know, find some way to speak to what their memories are. And if the child says, well, you were always so critical, you know, growing up and the parent knows that they really weren't critical, you know, it's far better for them to say, oh, I didn't, you know, I guess I had blind spots. I wasn't aware that that you felt like I was really critical. I'm glad that you're telling me this. Can we, you know, do some therapy around it um, so you, I can learn more about it? Or um, can we agree that when we're together, if you start to feel that way, you'll let me know? In other words, to be investigative rather than defensive. That's really the only pathway. Parents, you know, what's a kid believes what they believe at, at any age, whether they're, a, you know, a 40-year-old kid or a 12-year-old, particularly, a 40-year-old has had plenty of time to develop this narrative, you're not just going to argue them out of it. You have to find some way to be on the same page with them and to help them to feel like you're not being defensive so they don't feel as defensive so they can be more open to who you are. But it's often more about music than the lyrics. It's often positioning yourself as being 
you know, dedicated, consistent, concerned. You're not going to get pulled into the mud. You're not going to malign the other parent as tempting as it is. You're just going to be a steady, loving, available parent and hope that that kind of, you know, lighthouse, you know, to your child way out in the ocean is being pushed up and down by the waves of the alienation that you're going to, they'll be attracted to you in that. Yeah, I agree. The whole not fighting back, not talking bad, not putting the kids in the middle constantly, but just staying above and hoping that um, with consistency over time, maybe they would be able to reflect back and go, you know, when I was with this person, she or he never did that. When I was this person, he always seemed to be like an issue. And, you know, I don't know if that always is something that can be seen right away. Um, You know, sometimes that takes years, but I have seen that. And, you know, I don't know if we're going to have all the data right now for where we are now but of course you know in five or ten years we'll be able to look back at where things are and go you know oh yeah but right yeah i liked what you said in in the book i'm going to mention again because this book is really golden um you talked about um the wrong thing to do would be like well when i grew up my dad spanked Mm -hmm. me and threw me out in the cold and i didn't complain about it and you know darn it you know you think you're being abused because i took your phone away for an hour you know know, things were so much different obviously i mean clearly um um, the a lot of things that happened to a lot of childhoods back in the day would be straight up um abuse in modern terms for sure i think we turned out okay um ish and also i also think that there in our age group anyway, that there is a lot of, a, of accountability where, where people really look inward. Maybe, maybe I'm just making that up, but it seems like uh, we were trained to work things out. And I, I grew up in a house where if my sister and I didn't get along about whatever. My parents would be like, y'all get us. They put us in a room and be like, y'all work it out until whatever. There's no, there was no options. We just work it out. And right. Um, but it's different now. So speak a little bit about that. Well, I think the best study that I've read that explains this difference was an article by the um, Australian psychologist, Nick Haslam. It was called Concept Creep. And Haslam found that in the past three decades, there's been an enormous expansion of what is considered to be harmful and abusive, neglectful, or traumatizing behavior. And he did it by looking at the DSM and kind of the way that there's been this enormous expansion over things that get diagnosed. So that's what I meant by earlier in the conversation when I was saying that there's a kind of code switching that's required both by the therapist and by the by the parent that that what in earlier generations would not have been considered to be harmful, abusive, neglectful, traumatizing are now considered that way. And the parent can't just say, you know, we well, are wrong. They have to acknowledge that the the ground has shifted underneath their feet. And so now things are being labeled that way. They're being diagnosed that way. Um, and so it's far better for parents to to say something like, well, um, yeah, I wasn't aware that that felt emotionally abusive to you, uh, but I'm glad you're letting me know. And I'm happy to talk more about it or uh, hear more about what your experiences were or what, what can be changed in our relationship um, to make the relationship better. And similarly with trauma, I mean, a lot of things get called traumatic today that really just don't deserve that in any generation. Um, but still parents 
you know, if you just say, no, it wasn't traumatic, or you're being overly sensitive, or you're being a snowflake, I mean, conversation ends. Everybody wants to be understood, right? So, you know, the, the, you still have to find some way to to dialogue with that person. And that, that, you know, the entry point is always through empathy and responsibility taking, basically. Yeah. You know, if being accused of, of molesting your child and you know that you didn't, that's one place where I think parents have to just say, well, I can tell you with 100% authority, I'm seeing much more of that, by the way. Really? Um, yeah. yeah, as a result of, you know, psychedelics. Well, I had this memory when I was tripping on psilocybin that you molested me. And I think that explains why I've had all this anxiety. Oh, no, this is really common. You know, or through EMDR, I had a memory. And the whole false memory thing, people still really believe in that, that you can have a recovered memory at any age. And, you know, even though there's no evidence of it before then. But so anyway, I think if a parent's being accused of molesting their child, I don't think there's a way to nuance that. I think parents would just say, I can tell you with 100% authority that that didn't happen because I'm not capable of molesting any child, particularly my own. But then they still have to pivot back to the adult child's experience and say, but I also know that sometimes people remember things in a certain way because they're trying to remember some part of the relationship or childhood that didn't feel good. So I'm certainly happy to meet with a professional, just make sure it's a professional who knows what they're doing, you know, or do engage in some other way uh, to, to talk with you about this. I'm not trying to shut the conversation down. I'm just saying it's not the kind of thing I'm capable of doing with you or anybody else. Um, cause it has to be some kind of a line in the sand, but, um, but often kids who are saying that aren't that open to having any kind of reinterpretation of their experience. So I'm most of the time they're not willing to do family therapy. So it's, it's a tough, tough, uh, dynamic to work on. Well, this whole thing is tough. I yeah. mean, everybody, um, it's a, it's a great opportunity for sure for growth and for um, harmony and for resolution. Um, but also it's a painful time for a lot of people in this season right now uh, of just feeling um, isolated, alone, mm -hmm. um, separate. Um, like you said, the whole identity, you know, that I wasn't even thinking of that, but you brought that up and it's brilliant of, of yeah, like, you know, someone growing up and thinking they're going to be a grandfather and having a baby or, or a grandchild. And then all of a sudden that's just gone and not being able to experience, you know, when he turned one or right. birthday parties or Christmas or any kind of gatherings or, you know, mm -hmm. whether you know, that right. it is, it's being stolen. It's, it's taken away um, yeah. a, a natural part of what life would be, you know, Ooh. um, yeah, the most meaningful part, you know, and, and often they're not even invited to the birth or even they find out about it from somebody else, you know, oh, I heard you're going to be a grandparent. They're like, oh, oh, I am. I didn't know. You know, wow. and so it's humiliating as well, as opposed to feeling very erased. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's oh, a tragedy. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's harsh. That, I mean, that's right. true, but yeah. Well, um, I appreciate you jumping on here with me today yeah. i know you are a very busy man and before we get going and i just want to make sure everybody knows verbally how to reach you um anything you have coming up um sure. i know you have this book and you have your first book that you mentioned uh, when parents hurt when parents hurt okay yeah. i'll have to get that one to you and you know anything else that you have or any final words um before we yeah we just to tell people, if you're going through this sign up, I have a free newsletter that I publish, you know, three to four times a week that gives gives advice to strange parents. 
uh, on all different aspects that we've talked about today. I do weekly webinars um, from 4.30 to 5.30 Pacific. Uh, they're pretty inexpensive. You can't afford them. I'll give them to you for free because I want people to have this information. Uh, what else? You know, I'm doing this training for, for therapists, uh, other professionals on March 5th. You can get eight, eight CEs of credit. So if you're a, a professional and want more to learn more about it, it's, and I need more people to refer to because I don't have very many people to refer this to. This is important training, guys. Yeah. I think this yeah. is really where we're at right now. This is big. Because yeah. you stay busy. You said this has taken over your whole practice. Oh, yeah, I can't. I can't. I have a massive waiting list. I can't. I mean, I'd love to have people to refer to. So if people want to get trained so I can refer to you, that would be, I'd be grateful. So. Awesome. And any, and the name of your website or any way that we can people sign up for your, your group and your, and your services, um, where can people find you with that? Yeah, it's www.drjoshuacoleman.com. So drjoshuacoleman.com, just like it is in the, Chiron, except no period and no caps. Um, so, awesome. yeah. And are you on this group that you have? Is this a Facebook group or is this something? Yeah. Okay, great, awesome. Yeah. And I also have a Twitter account and Instagram, and you know, so people. All the things. All the things. All, all the things. Awesome. Age exactly. Awesome. Well, you've been a tremendous help to me, and I know that you are helping many, many people everywhere all over um i encourage everybody who's watching today to please do share this again this is an epidemic and i'm i know i'm seeing it um other doctors that i'm talking to are seeing it across the board as well uh, friends and family are i'm seeing it um it's very personal to me and some situations that i'm going through on two different like um levels here and you know, there is a lot of navigating and there's a lot of emotions and there's things to work out and clear that way. This is not affecting your physical body because this is what I'm seeing is it's literally causing heart issues and people um, and other different things, depression, um, people yep. are getting anxiety medicine. Um, you know, they're just feeling helpless or isolated or alone or, you know, sad, a lot of grief. Grief is huge. Yeah. Um, and just not knowing what to do with that grief or what to do with the rejection. And and when we don't sort it out, um, it, it stores in the body and mm. then we can have um, issues or symptoms that become physical. And yeah. so it doesn't just become an outside like physical situation, but then it, we internalize and it becomes a physical or it can be. Um, yeah. So I, I just really do hope that you guys watching will share this and get it out there and um, let people um, have some hope that um, there's some tools here that can support you and what you're doing and that um, there are people like Dr. Coleman who are out there and helping people and serving and just helping give support to people in those kind of situations. Um, so again, thank you. Thank you. Uh, those of you watching, please do go to swiftfire.org, get on the newsletter. We do have a members meeting, a monthly members meeting. Um, we do giveaways and different things for those who um, want to support us and keep the channel going. Um, hit that subscribe and um, I will see you guys next week. Love every one of you and um, bless you, Dr. Coleman, and we'll be keeping in touch. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing and your service to humanity. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you too. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Awesome. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye, guys. Bye.